once again. You are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am indeed, and as always, your gracious and graceful host. How y'all doing today, tonight, this evening, 4 a.m., wherever you are? I, God damn it, I really enjoy doing these intros. <laughs> I'm like laying into them more and more. I need a job somewhere as a game show announcer. That's what I need to do, like the old style when they used to have those. Just somebody buy me a time machine and I'll figure that one out. I am extremely excited about uh, queuing up this next interview. This woman, uh, her name is Janelle Riley, and she is a polymath. I seem to get a lot of those. People that just do a lot of stuff. She's the deputy awards and feature editor at a little thing called Variety. Uh, she's a screenwriter, she's a producer, she's an actor, she's a playwright. And we had a fantastic conversation about, we, we actually ranked puppet movies at the beginning of the interview, basically. So that's where it started, essentially. And I'm speaking specifically things like Happy Fun Time Murders, the Melissa McCarthy film, versus Meet the Feebles, the early Peter Jackson puppet movie. So that's how it started, folks. It was game on from there. She has done this really wonderful short, a film short uh, called Crazy Love, and it, it's about OCD. So... Janelle also has OCD, and we discussed mental illness a lot on this show, and it's a huge passion for me. Um, I am bipolar myself, managed, <laughs> fingers fingers crossed still, um, but I went manic three times, and uh, it's a really odd experience, <laughs> to say the least. I tell people that mania is the best drug that I never want to take again. Because it presents like methamphetamine use. I've gone manic three times. Uh, the last time was a while ago. But it presents like meth. So you don't sleep for four days. And you have a billion ideas of how many businesses that you can run. And uh, you get hyper-religious. And you get hypersexual, And just everything just explodes. But nobody knows necessarily that you're manic. Because you don't know you're manic. And you probably don't want to admit that you are manic. Because that means it's all chemical and fake. So... It's a really odd disease, and I had a wonderful time discussing uh, mine as well as hers on the show. So, you know, big win. Hooray for mental health, folks. And we also did – this was kind of fun, too. We talked about some films about OCD, uh, and they really highlighted it pretty well. The Aviator, I've heard from every person I know with uh, OCD, like, that's the one. Scorsese nailed it. Um, as good as it gets, eh, what about Bob? There you go. And uh, Monk kind of got into that as well. At any rate, I had a absolute blast of a conversation. Blast of a conversation? I had a blast conversing with Janelle Riley. There you go. So I really hope that you enjoy it as much as I did making it. And I hope you learned something, actually, about OCD, because she was really open about it, and I am always open about it. Um, so hooray for psychoeducation. <laughs> and bye. Well, okay. Hello, everybody on the Inspired Minds listening audience. In the Inspired Minds listening audience, I must say, please welcome the lovely and talented Janelle Riley. Janelle, say hello to the gathered throng. Hello to the gathered throng. How are you today? <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for doing. By the way, is it hot as hell in LA right now? You know, I should know the answer to that, but to be honest, I haven't left the house yet today. So I'm sitting in a nice air conditioned room. Can't complain. Um, talk to me in about an hour when I actually have to go out. <laughs> exactly. It looks hot, if that makes sense. Like just looking out my window, yeah. I'm rethinking my entire outfit. 
Yep. You can see the the heat waves rising. Up yeah, there. exactly. Yeah, I, 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 oh, wait, that's fire. Right. <laughs> a little bit of a difference there. Um, <laughs> so the first thing that I always like to do is just, I fire off the same question for every single uh, guest, and that is the following. When you were younger, what was the first thing that you can remember that inspired you? Film, book, person, go. Well, I remember the, I don't know if it was the first movie I ever saw at a theater, but I remember the first movie that I I have a vivid memory of seeing at a theater and crying hysterically. And it was the Muppet movie, the original, (gasps) way, way back in the day. Yeah. And, you know, there's that, there's that song at the end. um, Magic, Magic Store. Yes, life's like a movie. Write your yep. own ending that way. Yeah, and yep. I just started sobbing, and I thought it was so beautiful. And also because I think I probably knew even then at that young age that I wanted to write or create or, or do something along those veins. I uh, was just so inspired. Is really the right word? Yeah, you kind of answered the second part of the question, part B, which is how did that carry a through line for you? An era. I mean, yeah, and I love the Muppets to this day. I see. Every single Muppet thing that I can, um, except, I don't know, does the Happy Time Murders count? I tried to watch that, and it kind of made me sad. <laughs> Not the thing. Yeah, that's the no, one that's like the uh, the adult uh, Muppets. It's a movie with uh, Melissa McCarthy. Sure. Yeah, I remember. Then, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I saw it intentionally because I'm like, oh, cool, puppets. And no. Right, right. And I have nothing against X-rated puppets. I loved Avenue Q. You know, but it's just, just, and I've seen Puppet Up, which is sort of their adult improv show oh. with puppets. Yeah. And I, I love those, but yeah, this, this one just, just made me sad. Actually, uh, have you seen Meet the Feebles? I have. I'm a big Peter Jackson fan, but I, to be honest, it's been years. Yeah. I watch it occasionally just on YouTube. <laughs> Go out of me. I find it out of me. I mean, I'm talking literally at least 20 years. I should really go revisit it. It's I mean, between that and Dead Alive, and then all of a sudden he's doing Lord of the Rings. I know. I love Dead Alive. That's probably, no, probably Frighteners is still my favorite Peter Jackson movie. Which one? The Frighteners. The Frighteners with Michael yes. J. Marks. I had a bit of a Jeffrey Combs crush as a child, okay. so, which oh. should tell you exactly how weird I am. So. <laughs> Reanimator from Beyond. Yep. yep. I know you're talking about. You and I are going to get along just fine. actually before i move too much farther i have to tell you this speaking of muppet movie um that was like a game changer for me when i was a kid too just but the songs right because paul williams wrote the songs you know this yeah they're great one of my favorite moments in my entire life was he was doing a benefit show uh for map music uh music what is it the recovery thing he does for uh for musicians and it was at spaceland in la and when he sang uh, the Rainbow Connection, mm. every like jaded hipster, like pavement, 1990s, you know, hipster, like including me, we all had our arms in the air back and forth yep. singing along. The power of the Muppets. It's very hard to be jaded about the Muppets. You know, they're yeah. just they're just so pure and earnest. And people have like, I think, just such warm feelings for them that like you, you can turn anyone into a blubbery mess with the Muppets. A thousand percent. And, you know, actually the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life or the most moving thing I've ever seen in my life, and I, you may have seen this, was at Jim Henson's funeral when mm. Big Bird got up and oh, sang. Yes. Green. Yes. Oh. oh. Just, and then yeah. when all of the other uh, puppeteers or Muppeteers 
uh, sang that song. I forgot what song it was. And it was like six of them in a row and singing. Uh, God, I can't remember what it was. Anyway, hooray for the Muppets. Yeah, they're pretty much the best. And, you know, you always have those people that you didn't get to meet or you didn't get to interview. And I try to keep that at a short list because there's there's so many people that, of course, you know, were before my time. But I never got to meet Jim Henson and I never got to meet Jack Lemon. Ooh, Jack Lemon. I actually yeah. did meet Jim Henson. <gasps> oh, so jealous. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to really make you jealous. Um, when I was a kid, I used to, uh, I lived in Newhall. And behind Newhall was this big uh, mountain area, mountainous area. And they used to film there all the time. And one day I'm walking, I'm like seven, I think, or even six. And I'm walking, just kind of meandering through this little area. And all of a sudden there's a, there's a, I see Kermit and I see Fozzie Bear and they're quote unquote driving a car and they're filming moving right along. Right. So, and I didn't know what the song was obviously, but I was like, uh, Kermit. And I walked up and as I kind of walked in the grips, somebody on the set was like, get out, get that kid out of here. You know? Mm. And then Jim Henson stopped him. This is an, I cannot believe this happened to me. Jim Henson stopped him and then said, bring the kid over. Just oh. so I get to like go up and, you know, they were up the, the engineers or whatever it was. They were underneath the car clearly, but they were talking to him. Like Kermit talked to me for a second. As Kermit, I presume. Oh, of course. That's so, you know, I was thinking about this the other day because I don't know if you saw the video of Tom Hanks yelling at people yes. to back the F off. Well, completely justified, by the way. But I was just thinking, like, you know, I've had celebrities or people I admire not live up to, you know, my ridiculous expectations or whatever. But I think it would be a particular kind of soul-crushing feeling to have someone like Tom Hanks or Jim Henson <laughs> not be cool to you. Yeah. True. <laughs> you know you don't fucked up. Right, right. When America's dad yeah. is, is yelling at you, you know you've you've messed up bad. I was just going to say America's dad, too. It's exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's bad. And you're right. Like, the guy, you know, knocked over his wife. Like, of course he's yeah. going to explode. And people were like, well, you know, it wasn't anything serious. And I'm like, all I know is Tom Hanks was rewinding to, was reacting to his wife, like, crying out, you know. And yeah. that that's going to flip something in you that is like, okay. You know, and also Tom Hanks has lived like, you know, 70 years on this planet, always being a nice guy, all, never taking a wrong step. Like if he wants to lose his temper once, we can give him that. <laughs> Even Jesus flipped the tables over. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, I will give him that. <laughs> so I want to um, move. This is it's so funny on this show. I've been so fortunate to interview polymaths. And it just there's something about the creative inspiration that oftentimes kind of breeds different venues of creativity. So as far as I understand it, I mean, I know that you're a features editor over at Variety. Sure. And that you're a screenwriter and producer and you've done acting and clearly you're a playwright. We were talking about that before. Why do, what made you decide to go or why do you go into so many different areas? I guess that's really the question. Well, isn't everyone a polymath to some extent? I mean, nobody just is good at one thing. True. I feel, or just has one interest. And and all of mine are kind of combined. Like I like entertainment. I like telling stories. So I think it started with wanting to be an actor and then realizing I wasn't very good. <laughs> um, and also realizing how grueling it is, you know, uh, like I didn't have the stamina to, to frankly, like get better at what I was doing and, you know, go out and take, make those auditions and, and live that hustle. I have so much respect for people who do. I'm also, um, 
you know, I had trouble being vulnerable. I grew up in an, an Irish Japanese family. It's like, you know, we're not really taught to show our emotions. So I don't think acting was completely for me. Um, I say it's funny because I, I actually just shot something as an actress last weekend and it was the first time in a long time. But usually when I'm quote unquote acting, um, I'm playing interviewers or, you know, um, or hosts or some version of myself. So right. it's, it's very rarely a stretch. Um, and then, yeah, so it was sort of through acting. I did a lot of improv. I freaking loved improvisation. Um, and I was good at it, but I wasn't like one of the best. And you, when you see people who are really the best at something, it's very humbling, you yeah. know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then I think, I think I started writing because I wanted to write things for myself. Like I, I remember actually the first book, quote unquote, I ever wrote was like in third grade. And I'm pretty sure I, I stole the storyline from an episode of Happy Days, um, except <laughs> the characters were replaced with, you know, um, beavers and gophers and turtles. Ah. And it was actually, now that I think about it, it was pretty elaborate. I created this whole world wow. um, called Silicondria because it was a cylinder planet. God, I was such a nerd. That's awesome. Uh, planet? Are you kidding me? It's awesome. And it was actually inside the earth and it was populated by talking beavers. And a friend of mine like would contribute to this world. And I just remember like my characters were flat tail, the beaver and two teeth, the gophers. And I'd be like, what do you want to name your turtle character? And he was like, Mr. Turtle. <laughs> no. it's like, like You're not really pulling your weight here, kid. Nope. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So I started writing these books and, and, unusually in, in stories that you hear like this, I was really encouraged by teachers and, you know, friends and family who wanted to read them and like helped me actually like, you know, bind them into like a little book that I could show people. And I guess I, I liked, I liked doing it and I liked the positive attention I got. So I was like, yeah, this, this is the life for me. There you go. And so then that carried, so how old were you, when you wrote the amazing, what is it, Cylindria? Cylindria, I think it was called. Cylindria. Yeah. yeah, I was in third grade, so I would have been. Gosh, what what age are you in third grade? Ten. Like probably eight, maybe. Eight. Okay. I, I went to. I skipped a grade, so I was probably yeah. Let's say nine. Let's split the difference. Okay, fair, fair enough. But okay. I remember I had a typewriter at like I want to say by age five I was like typing out things on this little kid's type writer that only did capital letters and wow. i remember writing a play on that yeah and now it's it's fun i don't know if i could find it but it probably just looks like everybody's shouting because it didn't have lowercase letters <laughs> all caps yeah and then getting into high school it really was sort of writing for myself and writing for my friends because i went to a high school that you know we grew up in oregon and you know better about the arts than some schools but like you know plays are expensive to do you got to pay the rights as well you should I will say that as a published playwright, you should, right. you should pay your rights. But um, sometimes it was just easier. And, you know, your friends who roles didn't quite fit them because like how many times can you do arsenic and old lace and like paint on the old age lines? Right. You know, right. <laughs> so I would write things for, you know, teens and, um, you know, sort of write them in the voice of my friends. And when we would take them around to these little thespian festivals and stuff and, um, yeah, I think that's where I really, definitely where I really started writing plays for the first time. You know, it's really cool that you mentioned storytelling, uh, about a minute ago, because that's, that is absolutely my thing. I am, I am the story guy. And the reason I say this is because as you know, I mentioned, I'm a therapist training kind of, uh, guy and 
in my work with my clients, I realized it's just stories. And what's really critical for me is having the, the codified story, the beginning, the middle and an end. And when you can see those stories, I always say this, that those stories are flying around us like butterflies every single day. Mm-hmm. And if you can catch them uh, and then you can assign meaning to them, then you got something. And stories are like, they're basically the way I see it. They're like a lattice work that, that binds us all together. Yeah. I mean, old as time too. We've always been storytelling in some fashion. I recently interviewed uh, Natasha Leone, you know, who... <laughs> writes, produce, directs, stars in, probably does the craft services on Russian Doll. And she she preempted the question before I could even ask it because she was like, everybody asks, like, how do you do so many things on a show? And I don't see them as different things. I see it like as all one part of storytelling. Right. A holistic yeah. view of the entire thing. Exactly. That's so dead on. It's also too, it's we need to, in my opinion, we need to pass on these generational stories. Yeah, exactly. We used to do that a long time ago, and we kind of don't anymore. Um, I think that I think storytelling is good in uh, you know film and books and television and kind of that medium, but when it comes to the oral tradition, which is really my thing, it yeah seems to be kind of a dead art. Well, podcasting might be the closest thing we have these days. Good point. So you're continuing that tradition. That's a, actually, it's a great point. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well done, Janelle. Just here to make you feel better. That's all I need. You know what? Maybe I should just have you with me at all times. <laughs> you How can do, do it. Be your hype man. Oh, I was just going to, you and I are in sync. I was going uh, to I was even going to go for the Flavor Flav reference. I don't know that I would have gotten that one. Flavor of Public Enemy? No, little, again, I grew up in Oregon where I was the most ethnic person at my high school. And if you... <sighs> Came and saw me in L.A. In L.A., I'm considered white. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, you you mentioned, obviously, about all the interviews uh, that you've done with the actors on it. You're an Emmy Award winner, are you not? I do have a couple local and one daytime Emmy, yes. Wow. What do you do with them? Do you, like, put them on the shelf and, like... I make them fight each other, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm actually looking at them right now, and this will show you how much, like respect they're treated with. And, and I, I, I mean that sarcastically because it really is a big honor. They are on a shelf next to a bunch of Simpsons dolls and a plush stuffed elf toy. I will actually, that reminds me of a similar story. Uh, I was at a uh, Daniel and Waz house and he was a producer and he's produced, he produced you two's the Joshua tree amongst a billion other things. And his house was kind of ramshackle and silver Lake and I walked around and I was in the kitchen and I looked behind the toaster. Oh, there's the best album of the year, Grammy, for yeah. you too. It's just in a place where I like, you know, it's next to photos of the dogs. It's like things that I like to look at and see and, and have there. Yeah. Um, so it just happens to be like a lot of Simpson memorabilia photos. Um, you know, I have also there in my, my theater company, Sacred Fools, we do sort of this joke award show called The Thirsties. <laughs> um, where we honor really silly things. And, you know, the Emmys are right next to those because I worked hard for those too. So I'm, I'm equally proud. You should be. So I got a two-parter here. A rough estimate, how many people have you interviewed? But the second part is, what have you learned from them collectively, individually? Is there an overall theme that you've got out of these? Wow, that's so, I, gosh, like <laughs> you have stumped me. I've never tried to, I, the other day I was trying to count how many career conversations I've done for the SAG After Foundation, because it's sort of like 
our version of inside the actor studio, yeah. you know, um, and we've had like all sorts of people come in and we usually do an hour and a half to two hours with them encompass their whole career. And I lost track at like 200. Um, wow. So I, I could like, usually it's easier for me to tell you who I haven't interviewed. Right. You know, people, people will throw out names and I'm like, okay, that one I haven't gotten to yet. Um, but I've learned so much, honestly, like I've like, I've learned such a respect for the craft, you know, um, David Mamet was the first person I remember William H. Macy said, uh, that David Mamet was the first person to tell him that acting was a noble profession. (laughs) And I sort of remember that I started to realize, I mean, I don't think I ever looked down on acting, but I think there was like. There was definitely a feeling of like, well, anyone can do that, you know, right. <laughs> which I now know is so far from the truth. Even when you're a quote unquote playing yourself, it's hard. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And so now I have like so much respect. And, and that actually, when I, when I do audition for things now on the very rare occasion, I'm able to go into it with a different attitude because so many actors have said like most roles you're not going to get go into that room. You're not necessarily auditioning for that one role. You're auditioning for this person for so many future roles. Mm. It's all about relationships. And also like something that I've learned from directing theater on being on the other side, Mm. sometimes the person who was quote, the best actor doesn't get the part. Sure. Yeah. It's not always about that. It's about like, you know, what's what the right energy is for the part, how you fit into an ensemble. Um, If you're a pain in the ass, like that's a big thing for me. I've, I used to be willing to cast people who were a little difficult because, you know, I thought that they were worth it. And I just know now that there's way too many talented people out there for me to waste my time. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, I've had that experience in the, in the music business where I was. In the oh, I'm field. sure. Yeah. You know, it's just people come in and out and it's like, if you, if you're not a good person, now that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of bad people in the entertainment yeah. business. But a person to work with, yes. Right, exactly. It doesn't need to be difficult. It's not rocket science. And most of the incredibly talented people I work with, it's so funny because they are not divas. They don't cop an attitude. They're happy to audition. So when you see someone who is like, got an attitude, it's it's funny. They're usually not the most talented person there either. Thousand percent. When I was over at uh, at Warner Brothers, you know, I was there for quite a while. And whenever a young band would come in, they had attitudes most of the time. But like the bigger ones, and I worked with Neil Young and Green Day and Tom Petty, they didn't have any attitudes necessarily. They just knew what they wanted to do. I do think that there's there's something I see a lot that concerns me, which is people like some some young group comes in or some young actor. And I think there are people who tell them that's the way to behave, yeah. who say, like, if you want to be considered a serious actor, you have to, like, be a little difficult and you have to, like, you know, make these demands. And it's it's sometimes it's the people around them you know, who are sort of creating this monster and they're not doing them any favors. None whatsoever. Moving on. My my segues (laughs) suck. You know, maybe you and I could work on my segues after the show. This fucking terrible. (laughs) Uh, Next question. (laughs) So I got to work on this better. Um, I really want to get into uh, the the kind of the mental illness world, but actually here's my segue. The crazy love document or uh, short, Yes. So fantastic. Thank you. It was so good. And I got to give you a shout out specifically on this one is that at the beginning when she says, you know, what if you don't say Maggie three times, will the world end? He's like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And also last one too was such great writing when she breaks the mirror and he goes, give me a call in 
seven years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very superstitious. I try not to be, but that's something that has really spun out of my OCD is that like, I tell myself I don't believe those things, but I know that I do on some level because, you know, I have to turn a light switch on and off nine times before I'm comfortable in a room. So mm-hmm. clearly on some deep level, I, I do believe it. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting. And we're going to get to another disorder here in a bit that I share with you. But as far as OCD, I've actually learned a lot about OCD from a friend of mine who actually who, who has very severe uh, OCD. And it's interesting. You know, there's so many people that say, oh, I'm, I have OCD. And yeah, no, you don't. Yeah, no, you don't. No, you don't. Yeah. And I'm just I just think you're so lucky to not actually understand what it is to have OCD. So bless you light and love, you know, but yeah, someone who has had it since they were at six years old, at least was probably the first time I I recognized it. It, it freaking sucks. I've heard about that. How did you recognize it at six? I became obsessed with the end of the world. Um, there was apparently a book back in the day that called, um, eight reasons, something like 88 reasons. The rapture will be in 1988. Oh my. Yes. And I was a kid. Oh, no. Um, and someone mentioned it to me and I just became obsessed with that. And I was like, you know, the only way to stop that is to, you know, do these weird rituals, like oh, the power I must have thought I had, mm-hmm. you know, and even though I'm like joking about it now, there's there's like still some part of me that gets a lot of anxiety over it. Like, you know, y- yes, I saved the world. You're welcome. Uh <laughs> <laughs> But, and I remember for the entire year of 1988, I would like go to school every day being, you know, terrified that today was the day. And so again, I had these rituals. My, my lucky number was nine because my lucky number was three and nine was three, three times. So I would have to enter and leave a room nine times before I felt comfortable, you know, again, with the light switches, you know, um, sometimes I would have to repeat words. There were certain words that were off limits. Um, that still are to this day. Like I go out of my way not to say them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have to do with like forever and eternity and stuff like that. And if, if I say one of those words, that can't be the last word I end on. You know, I, I have to make sure that like I cleanse the palate, so to speak. Sure. By, by continuing to talk. So, um, and again, I'm chuckling while I say this all, but there's like, it's, it's also PTSD. You know, I believe you have to be able to laugh at like, the the things that hurt you the most, uh-huh. but, but yeah, there was, I, I deeply believed this as a child and it was a lot of pressure to put on myself. Come to think of it. Uh, yeah. yeah, the, <laughs> the weight of the literally the weight of the world yeah. on your shoulders, basically. Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm much better, but I still, I still have a lot of issues like that. I still have, you know, and I've, I've worked on so many of them that I'm like proud of that. And I feel that I can still indulge a few of them. Like I have to use a new bar of soap every time I take a shower um yeah which is as you can imagine not a cheap habit yeah yeah it has to be a very specific kind of soap and they keep they're always discontinuing the products that i use so i get a lot of you know agita over that as well um but yeah it's uh you know it's it's you kind of have to talk about it because it is like such a part of my life but you also don't want to think about it if that makes sense yeah and now uh let's oh I got to say one last thing about the crazy love. One of the, God bless you, because I'm a big fan of good sinks songs in. Oh yeah. That Carly Simon sink. Fucking fantastic. 
so that Carly Simon song, um, so I don't know if, if it said this anywhere, but that movie was actually made in a weekend. Yeah, 48 uh, hours. Yeah, yeah, it was a 48 hour film. And I was given, you know, a cast breakdown of three women, one man. I was given prompts for, I think, Crazy and Chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I had 12 hours to write it. It was cast at random. A director was picked at random. They shot it in one day, they edited it, and it premiered the following night. So it's not conducive to like actually making great movies. And yet I think it's probably one of the best things I've ever written. Um, and, you know, you use temp music because you don't have time for someone to like compose a whole song or something yeah. like that. So he used a Carly Simon song and uh, the Bond estate is very litigious. So that's one of the reasons that that's, that particular short after a short festival run um, is really only available on my Vimeo channel. Like we, we can't have it on YouTube or Facebook or anything like that. So yeah. So if you want it, find my Vimeo channel. <laughs> it's ladies and gentlemen, it is fantastic. One of my favorite Carly Simon songs. And the thought honestly did go through my head. of like, how the hell will they clear this? <laughs> right. And we've thought about over the years, replacing it with a different song and like putting it on YouTube. But like, I mean, what do you do? Yeah. You know, it's such yeah. a perfect song and it sings yeah. so perfectly. And, and it's out of nowhere too. I'm like, this vibe, yeah. really? This is fantastic. And, you know, and like I said, it already had its sort of festival run. So, sure. yeah. Sure. Okay. Now I would love to discuss the bipolar side that you also are afflicted with, unfortunately. And as I mentioned before that we recorded, I have had it and I've had it. Um, after uh, a significant trauma in 2013, and it kicked in. But here's my quick story about this, and I want to see if we can kind of share stories and if there's any similarities. So my particular case, um, after the event, I got PTSD. I definitely had complicated grief. But the interesting thing is the mania that I that kicked in, mm. no one really saw it because they assumed it was just PTSD. And yeah. so that lasted about six months. I had a grand mal seizure in the middle of it. I mean, it was just completely out of control. I had depressed and manic. Um, and then I had it again uh, under another stressful time about two years later. And I, by the way, I was unmedicated for this stuff. I was not seeing okay. it because I didn't know what was going on. So then it happened again about four years later. Um, well, like, I don't know, three years ago, I guess. And I had a massive seizure while I was driving. I mean, oh no, yeah, fifty miles an hour. Uh, apparently, I woke up in the hospital, and they're like, "You hit your car. You hit somebody else's car. Wake up." That was exciting. Um, it, t- it turns out, by the way, that I was actually I slowed down for some crazy reason. I slowed down to five miles an hour as I was having the seizure. So when I hit the car in front of me, it was like a little beep, dunk. Oh well, thank goodness for that. I guess. Yeah. I know that was, that was, if really you have to find a, a silver lining to that. Yeah. You know, it's actually, it's funny. You mentioned the silver lining thing because, you know, a, a second ago you were saying you kind of have to, or can laugh at some of these things. I, in my future work as a therapist, there's a part of me that almost wants to have a thing called like traumedy. Oh yeah. That's um, traumedy is what I've heard them call a uh, pen 15. The what? show. Uh, have you ever seen the show pen 15? No. Well, um, I don't love the, the phrase cringe comedy. Okay. Um, and, and so someone suggested the, the phrase traumedy because it's, yeah, it's getting comedy out of trauma. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. And that's how, that's how I got through my trauma was through, I got funny. I got funnier. After my- <laughs> I was going to say you weren't funny before. That yeah, was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> 
But I did, though, because, you know, I was able to kind of laugh at the, I think what the existentialists always said, they said, it's like Kierkegaard and stuff. And they would say that to laugh at the absurdity of the universe. Mm-hmm. And I always loved that, you know, the yeah. chaos that is just swimming around us, that if you can kind of find that, not even so much laughter, but that joy in the chaos. That's what I appreciated so much. I mean, you have to laugh for you'll go insane. Yeah, yeah. I truly believe that. Yep. Hundred percent. So here's the thing about bipolar. Let's just start off with this line. See if you can uh, resonate with this. I always say these days that it's the greatest drug I'd ever want to take again. That's sorry. What is the greatest drug you'd ever want to take again? Mania. Oh yeah, of course. It's great when you're in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit about your experience with it and. What? I kind of dovetailed with the OCD. I think around the time I was always like kind of a sad kid and like way too serious. But then like, then I would be like, you know, funny and wacky and weird and, you know, always carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders. It felt, I mean, clearly I thought I was saving the world. So, right. That's, that's right. And then I would start to have these depressive episodes. I was more, so I've had bipolar, I've been bipolar for so long. It back in the day, they called it manic depression. Yep. Yes. And I definitely was more on the depression side. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then when like the, I looked forward to the mania because the mania could be fun, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> but it was it was usually more heavily weighted towards the depression. And, uh, you know, I remember I got really sick my sophomore year of college um, because I and I was convinced something was physically wrong with me. Because I would have these panic attacks and I would shake and I couldn't eat mm. and I would, you know, and I was having these I, and, and I thought and I thought something was wrong with my stomach because my stomach hurt so much all the time. And I would get all these tests and doctors would tell me they would say, like, you know, have you seen a therapist? Have you thought about, you know, looking into your mental health? And I sort of had this reaction of like, no, weak people do that. You know, I'm just going to tough this through. This is what like, why aren't you listening to me? There's clearly something wrong with my stomach. So they ran like every test possible they could on me. And then like, so I think someone actually said like, before we can do anything else, like you have to go see a therapist, you have to talk to someone because, you know, we got to rule this out. And so sort of, you know, like defiantly, I went to the therapist and I remember he changed my life. He said, people think that doing therapy and that taking medication makes you weak, but you have a medical condition and you would never tell someone whose appendix was bursting you're weak, get over it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, and that's, you know, you, you basically, you have that happening to you. you like, you, you need help and it's okay to ask for help. And at the time, especially that was like so mind blowing to me, you know? So I was like, all right, fine. Put me on Prozac. Right. And it changed my life. It really did. I tell my clients when they come in the room, I say that you are a warrior. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. You're a warrior, like the Spartans, like the Assyrians, like the Shoguns, because when warriors fall down, other people can help them back up. Other warriors, right? Mm-hmm. And when you say that to a, when you say that to somebody, client or not, they've never heard that they're a warrior before. Yeah. But I always say that the second you walk into my room, you are an actual warrior. The other thing I always say too, and this is to your point about um, not telling anybody that has cancer, you know, that you're you're worthless. Uh, I, I've said this for so long that when let's say someone does have cancer and there's a lesion on their arm right? Yeah. Look at the lesion. You go, oh, that is cancer. I am getting mad at the cancer. I'm not going to get mad at the lesion. But the lesion is inside the skull with mental illness. So you get mad at the symptoms because you don't know it's a disease to begin with. And the worst part about it 
is that when people judge your behaviors, such as you're lazy, you can't get out of bed. No, I have major depressive disorder. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know that you have that, then you internalize what they're saying to you. Oh, of course. And you believe it. Yeah. And that's the, that's the heartbreak. It's the absolute heartbreak of mental illness. Yeah. And that's why I do this show a lot of times Why I was excited to talk to you so far. And so far, it may get worse later. <laughs> it's going to take a turn any second. Now. Any second. Now. I'm just waiting. The clock's ticking right now for you to be telling This is when I tell you that you're weak. <laughs> you're the worst interviewer. And believe me, I know. I've interviewed 40,000 people. <laughs> that might be an accurate number i'm, I'm not I'm it, not it very sure. well could be since we're talking about the entertainment industry and specifically about uh about, about mental illness i pulled up some really interesting quotes oh yeah so i didn't know that um i just kind of popped in my head last night i'm like i wonder what celebrities have ocd and bipolar and i'm sure you know some of these um but there was one there's there were two quotes that i loved. one was from sinatra of all people oh wow yeah, and this is an incredible quote. He says, being an 18-carat manic depressive and having lived a life of violent emotional contradictions, I have an over-acute capacity for sadness as well as elation. Hmm. But my favorite one was from Richard Dreyfus. This is a good one. He says, uh, to find the diamond in the soil of bipolar disorder, and he refers to his manic state as an incandescent ecstasy of creation. Wow. They almost make it sound cool. Well, that's that's exactly it. So, because for me, when I've been manic the last three times, I, I mean, I was just creative, creative. I, there, there's a there's a an element of hyper religiosity that some people have who are manic. Is that anything that you? Uh, I definitely went through phases of that. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Looking for answers, you know. Again, I literally thought that I was you know, controlling the fate of the world. So I thought I was bargaining with God, you know, and that's definitely something that like, I mean, I think I still continue. I always feel that like even just praying at night, it's like a little bit of like, Hey, you know, here's a little, uh, I'll I'll do this. If you do this for me and look at how good I'm being like, can you please send this my way? Right. I, for me personally, when I got hyper-religious, I got, um, I got hard in the paint and Buddhism, which is not the worst thing to be when you're thinking that you're, um, a saint or something. And I ended up thinking kind of, kind of the reincarnation of a seventh, seventh century monk named Huanang in China. Really? Yeah. That's an interesting story. You should look up this guy, Huanang, and maybe I'll text it to you later. He's the biggest monk in all of China to this day. It isn't, he's like hats and t-shirts of this guy. Um, and I, I, I read something. I got really, like I said, I got into Buddhism. I kind of created this little thing in my head of, of having no thought and no attachments to thought. Um, and then I realized that this guy went on at the exact same thing with the exact same name, weirdly enough, as no thought, but it was translated into Chinese. So I went on that tip of like, oh my God, I'm, I'm the reincarnation. And I took it too far, perhaps, but it inspired me to go down this further path of spirituality. That's so fascinating. I mean, I'm in, I'm in a place right now where, uh, I'm grappling with that stuff. And I, I feel like, uh, <laughs> It's such a strange thing to say, but I have a feeling you might get it. I feel like I would be very susceptible to a cult. Yeah, get that all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure do. So yeah, I have to. I have to be very careful <laughs> with myself. Yeah, you know, mania. I, I always tell people too that uh, mania presents a lot like meth. Mm. So much so that when I saw my final psychiatrist out here, 
a while ago and he finally, he was the one that diagnosed me and he gave me lithium and then things are good and therapy and all that. But the first thing he had was as a rule out, he wanted me to test for meth because I was just out of my mind. Wow. Yeah. So I tell people that sometimes it looks exactly, you don't sleep for days. Uh, you know, you spend all your money. I mean, I'm broke as a result of, of mania. Were you a, a, a spending spree type of person? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I yeah. moved to Nashville, bought a house I couldn't afford. I mean. Oh, wow. You really went big. I was talking about like I'd run to the mall and start going crazy. No, I. Running up credit cards. I didn't screw around. I in some ways feel like I was very fortunate that um, my credit limit was so low. I mean, it felt like everything at the time that I never got myself into too much trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've heard of people who are bipolar if they're uh they'll hand their credit cards and they yeah. can went on to their boyfriend, husband, you know, wife and say, hold on to these for a while. Yeah. Not a bad idea. Uh, unfortunately, I remember in college, I did just that. And my boyfriend bought like a $300 pair of shoes that I feel like I'm still paying off to some extent. <laughs> right. Okay. So let's talk about movies that portray OCD and bipolar. Mm. Let's see what you got. Okay. Here's my list. I'm going to run these by and see what you think. OCD, Aviator, as good as it gets. Oh, don't get me started. What about Bob Monk? You know, this is crazy. People, I never really watched Monk. And I think maybe it hit too close to home because people would always be like, oh, you must love Monk. Right. You know, and I was just like, you know, when you start to hear that, you get like a little defiant, I guess. Um, but I understand Monk was actually a wonderful show and that Tony Schlub was, of course, spectacular because he always is. Um, Aviator, I think, is a pretty good representation, you know, and like everybody knows about like Howard Hughes wearing like the Kleenex boxes on his feet and stuff like that. And I, I really like the way that the movie presents it without without being like, haha, look at the freak. You know, and, but also like in a, in a very, I should, I should preface this by saying it's been a while since I've seen Aviator, but I remember like not being displeased with the portrait at the time. Mm. Um, as good as it gets really pissed me off. Yeah, I can tell why. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because it's see, it, I felt, and again, I haven't gone back and revisited it. Maybe I should actually. I felt that it was saying, Basically, you know, that he could take this pill that would help him with his OCD. It would also help him not to be racist and homophobic. Oh, yeah. I thought that he was a terrible human being. Yep. And that he wasn't a terrible human being who happened to have OCD. They were linked. Right. You know, and there's even a scene when he says, you know, to his to his doctor, the doctor's like, you know, how you can't just burst in here like that. And he's like, how can you say that to somebody with OCD? And I'm like, that's not how it works. No, it works. You don't yeah. go bursting into rooms. You know, it's like. You know, and there, I think because I remember Aaron Sorkin once said in an interview, a almost good movie is more frustrating than a bad movie. And there were things that, that as good as it gets actually got, which was like when he said, like, when he did go on medication and he was saying, like, you know, I'm realizing it's working. Like, I was thinking how helpful that could be. But then he turns it around to like, because I like you. So you make me want to be a better person, which, okay, that's a nice sentiment. You know, but it also shouldn't be the, the reason. Someone else should never be the reason that you choose to take medication. That is or correct. That's what's going to happen. When that relationship breaks up, you're not going to take oh, medication. There's no way that relationship lasts. She is no. not into him. Like, I, I don't really know why he's into her. He has this whole speech about how amazing she is and no one sees it. And I'm like, well, count me among them. Right. You know, she's, right. you know, they're, 
there's a plot line that I actually really do appreciate where they basically talk about how effed up the healthcare system is and, you know, HMOs mm. like screwing her over. And like, see, there's these moments that ring so true. And then it's like, oh, I took a pill and now I know I can be nice to Greg Kinnear because he's gay. Right. <laughs> and his dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you know, and you hit upon a great point there. And that is that having a mental illness doesn't excuse you uh, from being a dick. Yeah. Exactly. Right? Something I have to tell people constantly, you know, <laughs> or for that matter, a school shooter, right? Like, right. you know what I'm talking about here. It's just, it's just infuriating that they won't talk about, you know, the guns, but instead, Hey, it's the, it's the mentally ill. But then the best part about it is what are they going to do for the mentally ill? Fuck us. Yeah. They, people will go to great lengths to excuse the actions of white people. And like, and I have also learned a lot of times, like, I, I know that someone is just a dick, you yeah. know, and other people will be like, well, you know, it's really complicated. And, you know, he really suffered because of this. And I'm like, I don't think he's as complicated as you think. Yeah. He might just be a dick. Yeah. I shouldn't just say he. It's it's women, too, obviously. Sure. Yeah, so I'm thinking yeah. of a very specific conversation I had recently <laughs> where I was like, this this person is really not that complicated. They're pretty basic. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, you and I aren't dicks for lack of a better word yeah i consider myself pretty basic though as well so you know i don't think my my mental illnesses uh you know give me an excuse to you know a a manic episode might be an excuse for some sort of behavior but just having obsessive compulsive disorder nah yeah I, i i will say as far as a manic behavior uh i did a bunch of blow when i and i'm sober right like yeah when i was manic i i did like blow like twice which is so out of my character but yeah, i'm sober too not just just because i don't want to mess with my brain chemistry in uh-huh. any way you know i it's taken me this long to get it to a point where it's it, it's not perfect but like it's fairly well balanced and i'd, I'd like to not throw off that balance yeah yeah. And one last point, because I want to, I know you got another uh, shit to do, but <laughs> just like we talked for a second ago about the, uh, I'm so OCD, which drives me crazy, bad choice of words perhaps, is <laughs> when people say, I'm, you know, I've had such a weird up and down day, I'm bipolar. And I say this all the time, be grateful you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I say that too. Yeah. I'm like, you're so lucky. And like, Again, bless them. They don't know any better. Yeah. You know, I'm sure I've said stupid, insensitive things about things that I know nothing about and, and make comparisons that I shouldn't have. But yeah, you just kind of, you just kind of go, Oh, yeah, you, you don't know. And I'm so jealous of you. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what I say. Uh, yeah. You and I are like, you and I are wired brains, apparently, <laughs> for better or for worse. So the way I like to uh, kind of wrap up this show is we do a little uh, tradition here over at the Inspired Minds headquarters, HQ, which is, you know, a room. But what the uh, the deal is that I'm going to pretend to say goodbye. You're going to pretend to say goodbye. I'm going to pretend to hang up. And then we're going to chit-chat afterwards for a little bit. Deal? Okay. All right. Here's my key. I'm going to slate us in. All right. And click. Uh, how do you slate somebody in? Is it like an actual clapper? I don't know. I'm not really a good actor. So, <laughs> yeah, most people do use a, a real clapper. And they're like an actual clapper? Okay, like this? Yeah. Uh, okay, wait. And yeah, or you clap. Okay. You, you do the... Okay, it's done. That was totally off time. But thank you so much for coming on to the show. You are a fantastic human being. Oh, I really so not, but thank you. <laughs> oh, take a compliment for God's sakes. I'll take the compliment, but I'm, I'm, I can be kind of a dick. So. Well, 
at least and I will not show. blame. <laughs> I will not blame my bipolar disorder or my OCD for me no. being kind of a dick. You're just right out. You're being a big dick. Yeah. Well, thank you for not being on here and reining all that in. Your turn. <laughs> Yes, thank you so much for having me. I so appreciate it. I'm so glad we're talking about these things. Um, you know, not that long ago, I was getting messages from quote unquote friends on Facebook saying, you know, you really shouldn't talk about these things publicly. People will think you're crazy. And I feel like those days are are disappearing. Yeah, I've had that conversation too with people. Yeah, I bet. You know what? I don't care because if I don't pass on the lessons that I have learned through my traumas, it it's not, I mean, it is worth something because it helped me, but like big deal. Like I want to help others with it. Yeah, exactly. That's the other thing. Like if you know what any of this is like, you just want to help other people. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Trauma can breed empathy. Yeah. I have a, there's people I have a trauma bond with, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. <laughs> and like, it's really fun when you realize like, oh, we're not just trauma friends. We're like real friends now. <laughs> trauma friends. That's kind of, <laughs> I'm going to use that with trauma. I'm going to, Put those both together and do a thing. Thank you so, so, so much. We're going to pretend to say goodbye. You're going to hear a click, and then we'll, t- we'll chat in a second. Deal? Sounds good. All right. High five. Up top. Boom. Boom. Okay. Bye.